Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this series so far. I know I have. I think God um, laid this series on my heart so that I could learn about the kingdom because I, I don't know about you getting something out of it, but I think I've gotten probably more than the rest of you because I have just been soaking this idea of the kingdom for week after week after week. And I'm, I'm not kidding you, and I'm not just saying it because I'm up here this morning, but it is changing the way that I live. It's changing the way that I think. You know, it's like I'm supposed to be teaching these things and preaching these things to you, but Man, I'm living them because I'm understanding this concept of the kingdom uh, and how it so applies to every single part of our lives and every single facet of our walk with Jesus. And not just our walk with Jesus, but our entire life. Everything that we do ties back or should tie back to the kingdom of God. And so um, it has been a fun, fun series. And I'm excited this morning because we're going to be talking about some fun stuff. But just kind of in the way to recap to remind you, in week one, we talked about the fact that there are two kingdoms uh, that we can serve in. We can either serve in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world. But we know that those two kingdoms are polar opposites. And so you can't really be in both at the same time. You have to make a decision. And so the question for week one was, where are you living at? Are you operating on the kingdom of God or are you operating out of the kingdom of the world? Because there's only really one place that you can operate from. And then last week, the question that we brought was, what are you thinking? We talked about the way that kingdom thinking is completely, again, opposed to worldly thought. And since our mind was not redeemed at the time of salvation, it's in this process. Like, it's being redeemed, but it's in process. In order to um, facilitate that renewal of the mind, as the Bible calls it, we have to partner with the Holy Spirit. We have to rip out the old thoughts or block the old thoughts or recognize the old thoughts, take them captive, and replace them with new thoughts. That was the crux of what we talked about last week because we have an enemy that is the king of this world who is continually trying to get in here because that's one of the powers that he has is to plant thoughts. And so we need to take those thoughts captive. And I don't know about you, but this week I have really been practicing that. And man, it has changed. I mean, I was on a road trip this week to South Dakota and I could not get my phone to hook up Bluetooth to my van. And so I just listened to music the whole way. And uh, usually I let my mind wander to just kind of things, and I really took stock of what I was thinking and, you know, not at times let my my mind go places it wanted to go, but brought it into alignment with the kingdom. So today the question is this, who are you bringing? Who are you bringing? Where are you living? What are you thinking? Who are you bringing? In uh, Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 33, Jesus uses a parable to describe the kingdom of God, and uh, we're going to put it up on the screen so that everybody can look at it. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 33. Jesus is kind of out in the market, and he's telling a story he often did. He called them parables, and parables were just a story meant to convey a singular point. And uh, in this one, he said, uh, it starts by saying this. He told them another parable, the people that were just listening out and about. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest in the, in the, the, largest in the garden. Plants be, I'm sorry, largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds can come and sit and perch on its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through the whole batch of dough. So here's Jesus comparing 
the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. How many of you have ever seen or dealt with or handled a mustard seed before? Has anyone ever seen one? I know we did a, ser- or we did, no, we did a message a while back, years ago, where we talked about faith and we had little cards and we put a mustard seed on those cards. And I remember we, you know, we had to like tape it or I, we were trying to glue it or tape it or find a way. It was so hard to get the mustard seed on that card because it's so tiny. It's even hard to like, to even use your hands with. You almost have to use a tweezer when you're dealing with mustard seeds because they're so small. But when a mustard seed is fully grown, it can get to be like 10, 11, sometimes 12 feet tall. It gets to be huge. And so the point that Jesus was making through this parable is that the kingdom of God starts out very small, but it wasn't meant to stay small. It was meant to expand. And then Jesus tells this parable about a a woman who was making a batch of dough, and I don't know who she was feeding because 60 pounds of flour, that's a lot of flour, Um, But the point was this, a small little bit of yeast, if you've ever baked before, it doesn't take a lot of yeast um, to work through an entire batch of dough when you're cooking or baking bread or whatever you're making. It just, just a little bit of yeast goes a very long way. And so the point was just one and the same. The kingdom of God started out small, but it expands. And it was meant to multiply and it was meant to expand. It was never meant to just sit and be small because The kingdom of God is not an exclusive club for just those who are in the know. It's a wide open invitation for anyone willing to leave their old way of life and follow Jesus into a new way of living. Why is the kingdom of God meant to grow? Why not just have this exclusive club and just let it be? Well, I'll tell you why. Because God is crazy about people. God loves people. People are his favorite thing in the world, let me let me prove it to you. Second Peter chapter two, uh, I'm sorry. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine says this. It says the Lord isn't really being slow about His promise. Now let me give you a little background. I should have done this before I started. Peter here, the the uh, apostle Peter, is at the is kind of at towards the end of his life. He's a little experienced, and he's writing a letter to the church. And he says um, he he kind of sets up the scenario where people are they're starting to mock Christians and saying, "Where is this Jesus?" Because the disciples fully believe that Jesus would come back in their lifetime. So they're starting to, they're, they're mocking, they're saying, where's this Jesus you keep talking about, Peter? Or, or to the disciples, where's this Jesus you keep talking about? And uh, when is he coming back? And so Peter's answering this question. He says, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise. And his promise, I put in parentheses, is coming back to earth. As some people think, no, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. He wants everyone to be a part of the kingdom. That word everyone in the Greek means everyone, okay? Everybody, everyone. God wants everyone to repent. Maybe you went to a church before and they've said, you know what? There's a select group of people that God had predestined to be saved before the world began, and uh, that's who's going to get saved. Hogwash. We don't believe that because this verse tells us that he wants everyone to be saved. In fact, he wants them to be saved so bad that he's delayed his coming. He's delayed the fullness of the kingdom because he wants everyone to know who he is and he wants everyone to be saved. He's crazy about people. He wants them all to become citizens of the kingdom. The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that, on the, that, that there's going to become a day when at the end of time, there's going to be a big service around the throne of God. And it tells us that there's going to be people from every nationality, every tongue, every nation, every tribe, every skin color, 
all of us will be gathered around the throne in that day. Everybody, a representation of all nations worshiping God together. How amazing of a day is that going to be, right? But there's going to be a day that comes. He wants everyone. God's motivation is to see as many people come to him as possible. In fact, in Luke chapter 15, there's a series of parables that Jesus tells that kind of drives home this idea and shows us really the heart of God. Like what motivates God? You ever think of that? Like what gets God out of bed? Not that he sleeps, but what gets God, so to speak, out of bed in the morning? What, what motivates him? What drives him? Well, we find out in Luke chapter 15, there's three different parables that Jesus tells back to back, and they all have the same point. I'm going to condense those parables for you. I want to read the last couple of lines of some of them, but I want to I show you in these parables the heart of God, okay? So um, the first one is called the story of the lost sheep. And if you've ever grown up in the church, you've probably heard this in a Sunday school class, or you've heard this story, but Jesus tells this story about a shepherd, and this shepherd goes, uh, the shepherd has 100 sheep, and he loses one of them. And so he, he leaves the 99 sheep, and he knows where they are, and he goes to the valleys and the cracks and the crevices, and he finds his missing sheep. And when he finds him in chapter, or in verse 5, it says this, and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home and calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. He tells a second parable. It's called the lost coin. It's about a woman who has 10 coins. She loses one of them, and she lights every lamp in her house, and she tears her house apart to find the coin. And then this is what happens when she finds it. It says, and when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my coin. And then it tacks this on, okay? It says, in the same way I tell you, there is, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God when one sinner repents. So you might hear us sometimes say, well, maybe we have a salvation altar call and someone responds. We might say, well, the angels today are having a party. Heaven is having a party because you've come home. Well, that's where we get that. That's, that's, that's our scriptural evidence for that statement is right there in Luke. Like the angels have a party when one sinner repents, when one person comes home. The last story is called the lost son, or you might know it better as the story of the prodigal son. And it's about these two sons and their father and one of the sons says, hey, I want to have my inheritance, basically saying to his dad, you're, you're as good as dead to me. I want my inheritance before his father is even dead. And he takes his inheritance, and he goes to a faraway country, and he squanders in his inheritance and, and wild parties and prostitutes. And when he's destitute and he's out of money, he's, at the, he's in the gutter, he decides he wants to go back to his father's house because he, he's going to beg his father to be a hired hand. And so he's on his way back, and this is where we catch the story up. And it says, but while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, even though the son had greatly offended him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now, let me ask you a question. How did the father know that the son was a long way off? I think it implies that he was looking. You know what I mean? I mean, this guy was a farmer. He had a lot to do. I think it implies that the father was watching on the horizon to see, maybe my son's going to come back. Maybe my lost child will come back to me. And then when he sees him, what does he do? Does he wait for his son to come to him? No. He gets proactive and he runs out to him and he meets him out there and he forgives him and he restores him. And it's an amazing story. But here's the point of all of these stories. God is crazy about people. God's treasure is people. That's what he loves more than anything. It's what motivates him. Have you ever wanted something so bad that it just obsesses your life and takes over your life? I know I probably, I've told this story before, but I think it bears repeating because it's just a time in life when I wanted something so bad I could taste it. 
I, uh, I, I, I was younger, this is a ways back, but I wanted, for Christmas, I wanted a Nintendo, okay? And I'm not talking about a Switch, I'm not talking about a Wii, I'm not even talking about a GameCube, man, I'm talking about an old school, two shades of gray, NES that came with a little clicky gun, it came with Super Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt, and that little clicky gun, and when you play with Duck Hunt, that stupid little dog would make you so mad when he would laugh, when you would, you know, when you'd miss, you'd just shoot the TV, hoping to shoot the dog, and you could never shoot him, and you'd just get angry about it, and you'd throw your controller. You guys know what I'm talking about? The old school NES, the first one. And this was like, you know, like 1985. And uh, I remember it was like two months before Christmas. I had asked for this for Christmas. And, uh, you know, it was an expensive gift back then. It was like 100 bucks, which today, you know, is like laughable because game systems are five, six, seven hundred dollars. But it was like a hundred dollars, it was a big ask, you know? And I didn't know if I was gonna get it, but I was so excited about having a Nintendo. It's all I could think about. I would go to my babysitters and she had a, a catalog, you know, younger people, that's like Amazon in a book, right? It's a catalog. <laughs> And uh, I would, I, it had, there was a, it had like three pages of Nintendo games. And I would sit there every single day and I would just read the description of every single game. And I would just imagine myself with my Nintendo hooked up to my TV and I'm playing these games and I just over and over and over and I rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it. And I was so twisted up about this game system that it came time to, you know, it was Christmas Eve. And I, I've been watching um, like a guard dog underneath the tree to see if there was a box that was big enough to be a Nintendo because I knew the size of the Nintendo. And I had not seen one with my name on it that would represent a Nintendo. And so I, uh, I was getting a little bit nervous. And it came Christmas Eve, and I'd been watching, 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 and it still wasn't underneath the tree. So we made a last-minute trip to do some shopping uh, in a neighboring town, and uh, I was so twisted up about this thing. I thought, well, maybe this is it. Maybe, maybe they've been waiting till the last minute. And, and I was watching them because, like, they told me to stay in the car. I'm like, okay, this is it. They're going to get it to surprise me. And they came out with a tiny little bag. And I started crying. I mean, I was so twisted about this thing. And I said, everybody else is getting gifts for their kids. And I see them coming out, but nobody's getting a gift for me. And I was just whining, you know. I was 10 years old. And, uh, and uh, so we get to that night, Christmas Eve, and we always rented a Santa we had a rent of Santa come to our place, and he would give out one gift. And lo and behold, my first gift was my Nintendo Entertainment Center, and there was tears of joy, and I was so excited, and my 10-year-old heart was so jacked. And, uh, you know, it's six months, and I did not leave my Nintendo. I just loved it. I couldn't think of anything else. I, know, I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that where you're just so into something that uh, it's all you can think about. I get the sense that's how God feels about people. He is so into people. He is so, I mean, that's what motivates him is saving people. I mean, think about it. He gave us his very best. He gave us everything he could. He left all of his authority. He left all of his riches. He left the glory of an eternal realm and, and subjected himself to becoming a man, a baby, the most helpless of all creatures, and not a baby born to wealthy people or to kings or people who, are, who have notoriety or have fame, but uh, just a common, ordinary, poor couple, a teenager and her carpenter boyfriend at the time, fiance, he came and he left all that so that he could live the life of a vagabond and he could die a criminal's death. I mean, he couldn't give more than that. And why did he do it? Well, Jesus said it. He said it in Luke. He said, for I have come to seek and save the lost. It's on God's heart. The lost 
are all he thinks about. They are his motivation. Not all he thinks about, but they're his motivation. And that exactly is what happened is that Jesus came and he gave himself to multiply the kingdom. This kingdom was meant to expand because God wants people more than anything. So the question then becomes, um, how does God plan on carrying that out? How did God mean for the kingdom to expand and to multiply? Jesus was only really doing ministry on this earth for about three and a half years. It wasn't a very long time. I mean, God's plan was not to have Jesus bring the whole world to him in three and a half years. That's not actually why Jesus was on this earth. He was here to seek and save the lost, but there was a plan that he put in motion to make it happen. See, the plan was this, that Jesus would pour into 12 guys while he was on this earth, and more disciples, it wasn't just the 12 apostles, but mainly he would pour into these 12 guys, and he would share his heart with them, he would, he would teach them about the kingdom, and then they would get sent out to do the same thing, and to multiply, and multiply, and multiply, and multiply. So we come to today, the kingdom of heaven, the multiplication of the kingdom of heaven, guess, guess who gets to do that job? We do. We get to be the multipliers of the kingdom of heaven. We're the ones who get to carry out God's heart. We're the one who gets to do what God wants more than anything. We get to be a part of that and partner with that. How exciting and yet absolutely scary that is for most of us, right? We say the word evangelism, and most Christians are, Ooh. you know, it's like Mufasa. It's like evangelism, Ooh. say it again, evangelism, Ooh. you know? We get really, really um, scared, some of us. When we talk about evangelism, and I think there's a couple of different reasons for that. I think, number one, we live in a culture and a climate that is very hostile to Christianity, very hostile to the gospel. You know, 50, 60 years ago, a lot of people were grow had grown up in church. A lot of people believed the Bible was true. And so, you know, if you talked about your faith, it was more accepted and people understood where you were coming from. But in 50, 60 years, we live now what's called in a post-Christian world, and a lot of people have never gone to church. They don't understand the Bible. They're skeptical of clergy. They're skeptical of church. They're skeptical sometimes even of the Bible. And so we go out into this climate where people are skeptical, and not only just skeptical, like downright hostile, because we have some, some people label us bigots and hateful, and uh, they, they label us as judgmental, and they've had bad experiences before, and it all gets thrown on us. And so it, it creates this climate where it's very hard to talk about what you believe because there's opposition, and there's things out there that people have experienced that all of a sudden gets reflected on you. And so it's, it's intimidating to go out and to talk about your faith. And not only that, I think it's also intimidating to talk about your faith because sometimes even as pastors and, and evangelists, and I may be guilty, I hope not, but I might be, of making evangelism this kind of one-size-fits-all thing where we tell these stories about, you know, I remember going to camp and hearing stories specifically about kids who would get up on lunch tables and they would just preach the gospel with boldness and all these kids would like, you know, would be saying, what can we do to get saved in the lunchroom? And they'd be coming down and I was like, if that's evangelism, no way, man. <laughs> like, I have a hard enough time getting up and giving a speech that I have to give in speech class, let alone talking about my faith in a room full of people, you know, who could just beat me up. I just, I didn't, it was intimidating. And sometimes I think we get these evangelists too who are extroverts and maybe they even have the gift of evangelism and we see them and we're like, oh, we're supposed to be that? Uh, I don't think so. You know, I can't do that. And so, so we get intimidated and we put our faith on the, or we put, our, we put evangelism on the back burner of our lives. And we, we, we try to compensate in other areas. So we say things like, well, I'm, you know, intercession is really my thing. 
That's really what I'm good at. And so I don't really have the gift of evangelism. I'm more of an intercessor. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for those who are on the front lines. And I tell you that evangelism is not relegated to extroverts. And it's not relegated to just, yes, there are people who have the gift of evangelism. But evangelism is for all of us. And here's the crazy part. Sometimes we motivate people to go out and to reach people by saying, there's a whole world of people out there who are dying and they're going to hell and you need to get out and do something about it because you're the answer. And that's true. That's very true. But I've never heard anyone evangel or motivate someone to do evangelism by saying, hey, check this out. God's heart is for people. He's crazy about people. And we get to partner with God to do something for God that uh, nobody else can do. And that's evangelize. We get to partner with God, because here's the thing, I mean, think about what we can do for God. I mean, he doesn't need money, he doesn't need things, you know, what, what do you really do for God that he, that he can't necessarily, you know, that, that he wants us to do, and that's evangelism. We can, we can go reach people, and we can make our, we can please the Father's heart by winning people to Jesus. That's something we can do. I feel like it's the positive side of evangelism. Like, we get to do something that God loves, God's favorite thing in the world, his Nintendo moment, is when someone comes to know him, and we get to be a part of that here on this earth. How exciting is that, and how fun is that? Well, this morning, I want to tell you that it's not, it should not be intimidating. You know, I think people get intimidated, too, because they go out, and they're like, well, what if I don't have the right answers for the questions that they ask? What if they have these crazy theological questions, and I don't know the answers? Or what if they have this weird thing about how the Bible contradicts itself, and I don't have the answers for that? I want to tell you this morning that there is just, evangelism was never meant to be this super intimidating process. In fact, there's two ways and two methods of kingdom evangelism that I want to talk to you about that are as natural as living your life. And the first one is this. The first one is just to be the Jesus billboard. Just be the Jesus billboard. In 1 Peter 3.15, it says, but in your, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So this verse tells us we need to have an answer, right? Well, the only reason that you would ever have to have an answer for something is because you anticipate there being questions. This verse assumes that you're going to be living your life in such a way that it's going to make people curious, and they're going to ask you questions. This verse also tells us that we need to be ready to talk about the hope that we have, which is what? That's our salvation. That's eternity. That's our life in Jesus. we got to be ready to talk about that when we get the question. But but here's the cool part about this. Because we're the greatest advertisement of what Christ looks like, it should be super easy and very natural for us. And, and there's a couple of ways that, that we do that by being the Jesus billboard. Number one, we, we look differently than the world. We look different than the world. Um, you know, when I was uh, painting, I was on the job site construction. And, uh, you know, those guys are rough, obviously. If you've ever been around a construction site, it's, it's, not a, it's a rough place to be. Um, just, just in the terms of, you know, guys and the way that they joke and the things that they say. And um, I was in, that, I was in that, that world for a few years. And it was crazy because I didn't really always, I just didn't participate the way they did. I just, I didn't try not to. I wasn't trying to look holier than now. I just lived my life out. You know, it was just the normal me. Like, you know, when they're telling crass jokes, I didn't, I, I didn't join in with that. You know, I didn't, I wasn't, when I hit my, hit my, Thumb with a hammer, I didn't swear. I just didn't because that's not who I was. You know, it wasn't that I was holier or better than them. But here's the crazy thing. They noticed that. They noticed it. I didn't shove Jesus down their throat. I didn't give up and give speeches. 
I just live my life. And you would not believe how many of those guys came to me one-on-one in times of trouble and said, hey, Jared, I know that you have a faith, um, and I've got an issue. Could you, what do you think I should do about this? I was a Jesus billboard just because I didn't participate in some of the things that they did. Again, not looking down on them, not judging them. I never said you shouldn't do that. I never said that. I just didn't do it myself, and I stood out, and I looked different because of that. I looked different for a lot of reasons, but that was a good one. We've established that the kingdom and the world are opposites, right? And so if if you're living out of the right kingdom, you should stand out because you'll be different from the world, and they'll notice it. Number one, by the things that you do, by forgiving people, by encouraging people, by accepting people, by owning your mistakes, just doing the things that we would do as a Christian. You're going to look different. Like, who owns a mistake when they make it anymore? That just doesn't happen. So you do that, and you're going to stand out. People are going to notice. But it's also by the things that I don't do, or we don't do, and that's what I talked about a little bit, like not participating in sin. How about, how about not gossiping? Because you always have that group of people that get together, and they talk about the boss, or they talk about other coworkers. What if you just don't? What if you, what if you just... What if you're not one of those people that throws someone on the bus to, under the bus to get ahead? What if you say love covers a multitude of sins and you step in and you take, take the hit for them? I mean, those things are weird to the world and you're going to stand out. And then they're going to come to you and they're going to ask you a question. Let me ask you, is it intimidating to answer a question about your life? Not really. Not really. It's not like getting up and memorizing a speech or memorizing a method of evangelism. It's just living your life to be a billboard for Jesus. So you look different than the world. The second way you'd be a billboard for Jesus is by looking attractive. This is harder for some of you than it is for others. <laughs> Just kidding. If we follow Jesus daily, we will, there will be this process where we tend to look more and more like him and less and less and less like ourselves. And that's a good thing. Because Jesus was attractive to people. Obviously, I'm not talking about his physical Appearance. I'm talking about his character, his nature. How do I know that Jesus was attractive to people? Well, number one, people flocked to him. They hung out with him. There's large crowds that followed him wherever he went. You don't follow someone who's not attractive, who's not interesting, who doesn't have a good persona to be around. The other way that I really know it is that kids love Jesus. They would flock to him. In fact, the, the disciples at one point tried to beat him away and said, hey, get out of here. And she said, no, 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 let, let the little kids come. Let the little kids come. I want to bless them. And he used them as an object lesson. But, you know, kids loved him. And so I know that people were attracted to Jesus. And so just by the very nature of us looking more like him, we're going to be attractive, excuse me, to the world. You know, we we look more like him. We have more of the Holy Spirit on us. And there's a thing called the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's talked about in Galatians chapter 5. And basically what it means is that when the Holy Spirit is flowing out of us, we're going to have certain actions that flow out of us as a byproduct of our relationship with God because of the Holy Spirit controlling us. And, and one of, a couple of those things I'm just going to mention, one of them is love. How, how, uh, how controversial is it when you have someone who loves you? How much do you hate people that love you? No, nobody does. If someone genuinely loves us, you want to be around that person. How about someone who has joy? You know, like how fun would it be to hang out with Buddy the Elf all day long, right? Just joy, joy resonating and excitement resonating from them. How about peace? You know, in a chaotic world, someone who is at peace, even when things are crazy, even when their life should be crazy, even when maybe there's something in their life that people know about, like a sickness, a disease, something that's, that should just throw them off kilter and make them go crazy, but they have complete peace. How many of you know that that's attractive 
to people, and people are going to want to know, like, how do, you, how do you have that so much peace? How are you so calm all the time? What about, what about patience? A person who's patient, they can diffuse even the angriest situation. You know, someone who doesn't just react right away, but they're, but they're calm, and they're collected, and they're patient with you when you make mistakes. I mean, you want to hang around people like that, do we not? Those are just the first four fruits of the Holy Spirit that are mentioned in Galatians chapter 5, and there's a whole list of them. But the, the, the point is this. I, I mean, I could go on, but I think you get the picture. By way of living a spirit-filled life, you're going to automatically display these qualities. They're just going to be a part of who you are. And um, then the awesome part of that is you're going to get an opportunity to share the kingdom with people when they start to ask questions. I love that you don't have to memorize speeches. I love that you don't have to, you know, memorize four spiritual laws or memorize, there used to be this thing called evangelism explosion, and you'd knock on people's doors and you'd go through this memorized script. You don't have to do those things. You just have to live your life. You have to follow Jesus, and you have to follow him close. Otherwise, you're going to look like the rest of the world. But if you are, you're going to look different enough where people are going to ask you questions. You don't even have to go to them. They're going to ask you questions. So there's being a Jesus billboard. The second way that's just natural evangelism, kingdom evangelism, is evangelism through power. And this is one that I'm going to camp on for a little bit because I think we're missing it. I really do. Luke 9-11 says this. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them, this is Jesus, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. Notice he spoke about the kingdom. And he healed those who needed healing. Luke 10, 8 through 9. When you enter a town, enter, well, this is Jesus, sorry. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. He sent them out on a missions trip. I don't know if you knew this. It's kind of interesting. Jesus, before he left this earth, he sent his disciples out on a missions trip, like a test run. Like, like this is what you need to do. This is what I'm calling you to do. I want to see how you do while I'm here. To, to mentor you through it. So he says, when you enter, he's giving them a pep talk before they leave. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what's offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of heaven has come near to you. So he says, you know what? If you're gonna go out, heal the sick and preach the kingdom. In the verse before, we see that God preached the kingdom and healed those who needed healing. In 1 Corinthians 4.20, it says this, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Church, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of power. If you follow the same Jesus of the Bible, it says at the end of Luke, when you read, the, when you read at the end of Luke, there's what we call the Great Commission. It says, go preach the gospel to every creature. It says, oh, by the way, these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. In my name, they will lay their hands on the sick, and the sick will recover. The gifts were meant for us. That power that Jesus had, the Bible tells us, resides within us. And Jesus said in the Bible, even greater works will you do than what you saw me do. Church, we have power, and I don't think we're tapping into it. You know, when you go up to someone who is blind and you pray for them and they start to see, how many of you know that, that, that there's going to be no theological debates over who God is or whether he exists or not? It's pretty much settled. They're just going to want to know how they can get a piece of that, Right? That those power gifts were not just meant for the church. Yes, they were meant for the church. Healings were meant for the church. Miracles were meant for the church. And we should see those things happen. But I'll tell you what, even more they were meant for out there. Because they're proof that God is who he said he is. And they're proof of the message that we're talking about this morning. And uh, I think that we miss it so many times. And it's just, uh, it's incredible because God gives us this, he gives us this 
overwhelming, insurmountable task. Go reach the world for me. It's a hard, it's a hard ask. It's a big challenge. But he says, you know what? I'm going to give you the tools to make it happen. But here's the thing. We've got to take advantage of those tools. When is the last time that you were telling someone about your faith and you said, hey, can I pray for you to be healed? When's the last time you just saw someone? And I know that this is a little bit intimidating, but at the same time, how amazing is it if you just saw someone who was in a wheelchair and said, hey, can I pray for you that God heals you? And, you, and most people would take that prayer, honestly. They don't care. And you would pray for them, and they get up and they start to walk. I mean, how incredible would that be? And how easy is it to share the gospel when you, when you see an act of power like that happen? I want to let you know, folks, that... You know, you might have gone to a church that said those things were for yesterday. Those things were, th- those power things, those, those miracles, those healings, those things that you saw, those were for yesterday. But I want to let you know they're not. There's no place in the Bible, and I challenge anybody to find a place in the Bible where it says that the power stopped at any point, and it wasn't meant for today. Show it to me. I'd love to see it, because it's not in there. You're not going to find it. You can, you can look all day long. I challenge, I'll give you $100 to anybody who can tell me that the power stopped. Because I know it doesn't. I've read the Bible. I know it. The power is meant for today. Here's the crazy thing about the kingdom. And I don't know if you ever thought about this, but why, did Jesus, why, are, those, why are those miracles so significant? I'll tell you why. It's because the kingdom came. The kingdom comes, and I'll tell you why. Because when people are healed, think about the kingdom. There's no sickness in the kingdom of God. So when the kingdom comes, people get healed. People were delivered from demonic possession. Why? Because in the kingdom, there is freedom, complete freedom. And demonic possession puts people in slavery. People were raised from the dead. Why? Because there's no death in the kingdom. How fun would it be to walk into a funeral, lay your hands on the person in the casket, see him get up and go have a party? Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, you wouldn't even have to Joe Diffie prop him up beside the jukebox because they could dance by themselves. <laughs> food was multiplied in a miraculous way. Why was food multiplied? Because there's abundance in the kingdom. When the kingdom comes, the power comes with it and the revealing of the kingdom comes with it. And that Guys, it's for us today. And I want to let you know that this, this power, maybe you've experienced it yourself. Maybe you're in here and you've never experienced it. And you're like, I don't even know if that's real. I want to, I want to have a couple of people come up this morning. And I want them to share um, some very real stories. And uh, I'm going to actually ask my wife, first of all, um, if she could grab the mic. I'm going to ask my wife to come up. And I want her to share just a real quick story about how she's seen this impact in her life. When I was two-ish, I had a baby brother born. My family, I was born in Oklahoma. My family moved to Wisconsin. And my brother was born in Wisconsin in the, on the kitchen floor, planned that way. But I was there. I saw it happen. Um, and he was born a healthy, you know, thriving baby boy. And that was in November, November 1st. And this, in the, in the next spring, um, he developed like a congestion that didn't really go away. And my parents thought, well, maybe it's because we moved to Wisconsin, and we're not used to, you know, cold and, and things like that. Um, but it continued to get worse, and he wasn't eating well. He wasn't nursing well. My mom tried to bottle feed him. That didn't really help much at all. And so they took him to the doctor, and the doctor said, I just think he has a bad cold. And so they went home, and, um, and that continued. And so uh, my brother just still wasn't getting nutrients, and he started, uh, he stopped gaining weight. He stopped growing. And um, this went on for a while. I don't know the, the exact, you know, months, weeks, whatever. Um, but he, the doctor had, a, had my parents start giving him baby food to get more nutrients in that. And he wasn't growing. He just, he couldn't keep 
any food down. And so I, rem I remember this vividly, like everywhere, if we went anywhere or even at home, there would be a towel on the floor, a towel on my mom's lap and a towel like on her chest and my brother just sitting on her lap always because he didn't have energy to move anymore. And um, he had learned to walk as a toddler, but um, he just kept getting more and more sick and had stopped walking, had stopped gaining weight. And um, they took him to the hospital and they ran a whole bunch of tests on him. And they did, um, at the time, a sweat test and they diagnosed him with cystic fibrosis. And at that time, um, people, this was, would be the early eight, 1980s, um, people with cystic fibrosis rarely lived like beyond 20 years old. I think it's longer now, but um, that was his diagnosis. And so he was given a bunch of medicine and digestive enzymes and um, he could eat uh, rice cakes with peanut butter and digestive enzymes, but three towels everywhere, and then he would throw them up. And so this was just kind of the condition that um, he was in, and it progressively got worse. And my mom really got um, to the point where she just thought, I, I'm afraid that my child is going to die in my home. And so she said, I, I'm going to take him to the doctor because if he's going to die, I want him to do it there or not in my home. And so she called the doctor, she made an appointment, the doctor was booked, um, they moved some things around and, and got an appointment in um, right before lunch. And so my mom got on the phone and she said, this is what she told me, I called everyone from California to New York to pray for my boy. This is before email, before the internet, you get on the phone, you make the phone call. And um, she drove my brother to the doctor's office and as they were waiting for the doctor, my brother was sitting on her lap and he saw a ball under a chair um, across the office and he crawled off my mom's lap onto the floor and she was very surprised because he hadn't been moving at all. He's like two and he hasn't been crawling, he hasn't been walking. And the doctor came in and said, I looked at my brother crawling and said, I thought you wanted him admitted to the hospital. Like I thought we were at this point. And she goes, well, I did. But when we got here, he started moving. And so as she was talking to the doctor, my brother stood up and started taking steps like a two-year-old that knows how to walk would. And the doctor said, what happened from all, you know, all these months in this morning till now? And she said, I got every person I know to pray for him. And that doctor, thank God, was a believer. And they said, this is a miracle. Like we, we have just witnessed a miracle. Um, in here. A few months later, he left. He started growing. He started being able to eat more. Um, a few months later, he needed hernia surgery, and they said, we can't give him anesthesia. He has cystic fibrosis. And my mom said, he doesn't. He was healed. And of course, that doesn't go over very well, always. Um, and so they said, my mom said, run the test again. And they did, and there was zero um, sign of cystic fibrosis. To this day, we were with my brother yesterday in South Dakota, and he said, I just stopped telling doctors today as a 40-year-old man, I stopped telling them I have cystic fibrosis because they don't believe me. They say you were misdiagnosed or you're lying, like you're making it up. Um, but we, we know that God is a God of miracles, and my brother is alive and thriving today. Guys, it happens all the time. Miracles, the power of God is real. I want Pastor Donnie to tell his story, too. Well, uh, so many of you might know or may not know that um, my wife and I, before Maddie was born, we actually had, uh, she had uh, two miscarriages before our uh, Maddie was born. Um, and so when Maddie was born, 
or not but when she was pregnant with Maddie, they had to start, it was a high risk pregnancy, so they started doing ultrasounds really early. Like I actually have a picture in my office of Maddie and she's like, I don't know, it's an ultrasound picture of Maddie, and it's like a peanut, it's so small. Like I didn't even know they could take pictures at that age, but they did. And so they, they were monitoring Megan's pregnancy a lot through uh, while she's pregnant with Maddie and stuff like that. And so, but um, I don't know how many months we were in to the pregnancy, but I do remember that I was, it was a Wednesday and I was here at church cause getting ready for youth. It was about 5.30 and the doctor called Megan and was like, your baby has, is, has complications. And actually she is not gonna be born with a spine there's a lot of other things that are wrong with this baby and this pregnancy. Um, so you are going to have to go and see a specialist. But the specialist is on vacation for two weeks. And so we have, we get this news on a Wednesday. I gotta go preach, she's gotta do nursery. We got a lot of stuff going on. Now I remember, you know, the, um, the angst in me. I remember going into the office and talking to Pastor Barry and just kind of breaking down, like, how are we going to do this? What are we going to do? Is this baby not going to be born? What? And, you know, he's like, hey, you know, he just kind of put me in check a little bit. and said, hey, we're people of faith, you know, and God is bigger than this. And I was like, all right, <laughs> you know, suck it up, Donnie, let's go. So <laughs> do you believe what you preach or not? So uh, for those two weeks, um, we just, we called the saints to prayer, man. And I remember Megan and I praying for two weeks. I remember the church praying for these two weeks. And um, we, you know, we, of course, we're going to have Maddie, no matter what the specialist says. We just made up in our mind that, you know what, our God is bigger than this, and she's going to be fine. And so we just, we had a peace in our heart and in our lives. We went to the specialist. I don't even know why we went to the specialist. Like, I just remember going to the specialist, and Alyssa would go with us because she's amazing. Uh, and we're sitting in the office, and we're kind of just goofing around a little bit, actually. I mean, because we knew that our God is bigger. We had peace, so we're kind of laughing, and the doctor comes out, and she was kind of mean. She was kind of mean, and she just looked at us like, do you know what kind of doctor I am? And we're like, a specialist? You know, that's what we were told, you're a specialist? She's like, no, I'm a doctor who does not tell people to take their babies home. That's the kind of doctor I'm, I you know, we're just like, Psh. We're taking this baby home, so you can do, you can say whatever, you can tell us whatever you think, but we know we're going to take this baby home. And we talked to her for a little longer, and we left, and we just kept praying. Uh, Maddie was born, of course. Uh, she was born two months early, but healthy, great. She's 13. You guys see her running around the church all the time now. And we just know, or at least I know, Megan knows, that, you know what, I don't think the doctor was wrong. I don't think that they don't make those kind of mistakes there. I mean, in today's day and age, we know that those tests are, are pretty accurate. We know that God did a miracle with our daughter. We 100 percent believe in those two weeks she was healed and she's great now. So Amen. praise the Lord. Other than her affinity for acting out musicals at home, she is great. Because <laughs> power of God is real. It is very real. And here's the thing, you have a good father who wants to display that in your life. And, and even, even as much as he wants to display it in your life, he is dying to display it outside these walls to people who don't know him because God loves people. He's crazy about them. 
This thing of evangelism, this idea of reaching people is a, is a privilege for us to be a part of, not something we should be intimidated by, not something that we should live in fear of. It should be something that's our heartbeat because God loves people and we get a chance to, you know, please God just by helping people understand who he is. And it's so easy. It's just living your life in the Holy Spirit, letting people ask questions. And then it's looking for opportunities to display his power. You know, I don't expect you to just, you know, necessarily go out, just find people, you know, in the hospital and pray for them to be well. I mean, you're welcome to do that. I, I wouldn't mind if you did, but I don't expect you to do that. But if you're running across people in conversation and they have an ailment, instead of saying, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, I'll be praying for you, pray for them and say, hey, let's see God heal you right now, you know, especially people who don't know Jesus. So um, I want to end this morning in a little bit of a unique way. I'm going to ask our prayer teams to come up front. So prayer teams, if you would, just go ahead and come on up front. Um, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, in just a second, I'm going to have the guys, there's a, a playlist up there. You can go ahead and play it. Um, we're just going to listen to some music. And if you're online this morning, our stream is going to shut down here in a sec, just because we can't, with the copyright music, it can't happen. But if you're online this morning, I want to encourage you, if you're looking for God to do something miraculous in your life, I want you to reach out and believe that God can do that, because he wants to display his power in your life this morning. But for those of you that are... Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.